How many of you from time to time fall into the trap of, of making assumptions or presuming things when you shouldn't? Yeah, there's some guys in here that are lying. You never, ever, ever <laughs> assume something that you shouldn't assume or presume something you shouldn't presume. I think it's, it's one of our greatest occupational hazards as human beings. Presumption, assumption, and, and it's a dangerous thing. I was just thinking different examples of this, this danger of presumption or assumption. It's, it's dangerous to presume there's no car next to you uh, when you switch lanes on 288. It's dangerous to presume you have enough money in your bank account if you do not balance your checkbook. Please, no elbows as I go through this list, all right? It's dangerous to presume... You'll pass a test if you don't study. Yep, it's dangerous to presume that the government will always do the right thing. It's dangerous to presume that you can eat fast food and bacon for every meal and be fine if your family has a history of heart disease. It's dangerous to presume that your marriage is healthy. It's dangerous to presume that your, your doctrine is sound, that your kids are going to somehow just turn out fine, that your home is safe, that your retirement is secure, that your lifestyle is, is wise, or, or even that you have endless years of life just stretched before you. Why do I say it's dangerous to presume those things? Well, it's the simple fact, friends, that, that we live in a very, very, very uncertain world. We live in an uncertain world. And by that I mean a world where things happen that we never saw coming. Right? And a world where people do things to us and around us that we thought they would never do. A world where wealth is wiped out overnight. Or, or disease kills someone in the, in the prime of their life. Or, or terrorists strike on, on the last day you expect them to do so. You're, you're kidding yourself if you think that this world is certain and therefore tomorrow is going to look just like today. Okay, you are deluded <laughs> if you believe that. But, but we're prone to, Right? We're prone to make those kinds of assumptions. We're prone to live with this illusion that we're somehow in control of our destiny. I mean, how many of you a couple months ago heard graduation speeches? Where, what was the essence of the message? Whatever you want to be, you can be. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, until you find out you're not in control at all. <laughs> right? You're not in control at all. That, that's a massive assumption. A massive presumption. Which is, quite frankly, why I really like spending time around old people. The reason I like spending time around older people is that many of them have lived long enough to know that you and I don't control anything of lasting value in this life. And as a younger man, I, I need that perspective, right? I, I need that perspective that the things that matter most in this life, the things that we all tend to care about the most, fill in the blank, are typically, whether you're a Christian or not, 
things that none of us can control. I need that perspective. But, but there's something else that I need too. I need someone to rescue me from what I will call the creeping cynicism. Creeping cynicism, see if you can relate to this, that quickly sets in when you've had your expectations of life dashed to the ground one too many times. Okay, that's my temptation in a major way. So, so maybe you know what I'm talking about here, okay? So on the one hand, you have kind of the naive bliss of presumption. That's over here, okay? And on the other hand, you have what I'll call the debilitating despair of cynicism. It's also known more popularly to my two-year-old or three-year-old as the Eeyore attitude. Right? So what's Eeyore's attitude? If it can go wrong, (laughs) chances are it will. (laughs) How are you? Worse off today than I was yesterday. Probably going to get worse tomorrow. You know, it's, it's the Eeyore attitude. But I was thinking about that this week, that it's really interesting that presumption underlies our pessimism no less than our optimism. Both tendencies are acts of presumption. So, so what's the alternative to our presumptive optimism and our presumptive pessimism? What's the alternative to that? Is there an alternative to that? I would argue from 1 John chapter 5 that there is, and the alternative is the certainty that God offers us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the alternative. Is there an alternative to our presumptive optimism or our presumptive pessimism? Whichever way you are prone to go, there is an alternative, and it's called the certainty, the certainty that God gives us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because knowing Jesus, I think this is the big idea of these verses, friends. Knowing Jesus enables us to live with certainty in the midst of a very uncertain world. The only way you will experience certainty in the world that I just described and that we're all too prone to presume or assume does not actually exist is if you know Jesus. Jesus gives us certainty in the midst of a very uncertain world. And, and the phrase that you may know if you were following as Beth read, or its equivalents, that phrase shows up seven times in these eight verses. That you may know, or that you may be certain, or that we may know. Certainty is the theme here. And the confidence that John's speaking of, the certainty, it's, it's greater, it's more widespread, it's more all-encompassing. It wraps its arms around more than we can ever imagine. Now please know, especially if you're not a Christian, that when I speak about certainty or confidence in Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about a blind faith. I'm not taking our universal tendency to presumption and just wrapping it in some sort of Christmas paper of religious garb. I'm talking about real assurance, objective certainty, knowing what is true because you know the one who is the truth. That's what I'm talking about. And and the Apostle John, from the very beginning of this letter, 
This is what's been so helpful and why we're so eager for us to study this. He has been helping us experience the gift of assurance, confidence, certainty, fill in the blank. And, and as he reaches his conclusion, I think he's drawing our attention here, church, to four kinds of precious confidence. Four of the most precious certainties that that God, as it were, holds out to you, invites you to experience through what Jesus has done for us. And I had a very noble desire to cover all four of them in one Sunday. And last night I called my friend Josh Kruger and I said, Josh, this is just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So here's what we're going to do. Okay, This whole passage is about the certainty Christ gives us in an uncertain world. And there are four certainties or four kinds of confidence in view here. We're going to cover two this Sunday and two next Sunday. Okay, So next Sunday, we're going to come up and read the exact same scripture. So we can see it in context, but we're going to focus on the first two this morning. So the first kind of confidence the Lord is eager to give us through the gospel is this. Point number one, confidence in our salvation. Confidence in our salvation. Okay, look at verse 13. We've read this verse several times over the course of the last five months. We've been studying 1 John, but now it is time to camp out here. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Just stop for a moment and think about the significance of what John's saying here. God wants to give you life. God wants to give you life. He's not just one more person, friend, who's trying to get something out of you. Why are you tired on Sunday morning? Because many of you have spent an entire week with your kids, your boss, your parents, your professors all standing in line trying to get you to fulfill one more need or solve one more problem before you collapse from exhaustion and are no longer useful to any of them. And we can come to church on Sunday and think, we'll just sort of put a religious spin on that, and now God's in line. You know, he's like at the end of the line, hello, hope you haven't forgotten about me because I'm looking for some love too, you know. God isn't present here to get something out of you. He is primarily present here, church, to give something to you. Life. He's not trying to extract life from you. He longs to give it to you. A life that's abundant. A life that never fades. A life where you're never bored or dull along the way, and and a life that doesn't end when when your eyes close in death, but is only just beginning. And that kind of life, it's the exact opposite of what we deserve. Exact opposite. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has broken our Creator's laws again and again and again, and we're universally guilty of treason as a result, and universally deserve to die. And not a death that is temporal, but a death that is eternal, because the glory we have offended is infinitely great. That's what we deserve. 
Yet praise be to God, he has refused to allow sin and death to have the final word. He's refused that. He's made a way for you to receive the eternal life that you do not deserve and could never earn. Which begs the question, if I cannot earn it, Williams, what must I do to receive it? We'll look back at verse 13. What's John say? Believe in the name of the Son of God. That's your answer. You want the life that God is here to give you, then there's one thing you must do, friend, and not just once at one point in your life, but every day of your life, and that's this. Believe in the name of the Son of God. Believe in his name. Believe that Jesus lived the perfect life you cannot live. Believe that Jesus died the substitutionary death that you deserved to die. Believe that Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, proving that his sacrifice was sufficient to destroy the power of sin, conquer the power of death, and make a way for all who trust him for the forgiveness of their sins to be welcomed before the throne of God as adopted son and daughters of the King. So, if that's what God is offering us through faith in his son, how do we know if that faith is alive and well in our hearts? I mean, that's, that's the question, right? How, how do we know that that's not just possible, but true for us? How do we know our faith is genuine and that we have eternal life? Well, well that's where the these Things, look at that phrase at the beginning of verse 13, that these things that John's been writing over the course of this entire book, right, that refers backward to the whole five chapters of this book, are so helpful. And just to summarize here, John, like a really good physician of the soul, you know, you go to the doctor and um, they'll often ask you to take some sort of test or a battery of tests to try to understand what kind of patient are you, right? What's going on inside of you? Well, well, John, he's a good physician of the soul, and so he's given us over the course of this entire book three tests. So just to review, here are the tests that we've seen. Okay, the first was a doctrinal test. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Are, are you trusting him to give you life instead of trying to create life for yourself? That's big. Bidding starts there. Okay, the second test was moral. Are you fighting to obey God's commands in every area of life? And the third was relational. Are you loving God's people the way he has loved you? And John, as a good physician, he's just come back to those tests over and over and over again to help us know that's that these things, as those who think we believe in the name of the Son of God, maybe you think that, but how do I know that? You know that if you take those tests And what you see is the fruit, the evidence of one whose faith is genuine. It's helpful. Those tests are important because by them we know whether or not we have eternal life. And make no mistake, friend, if you've learned nothing from 1 John, I hope you have seen this week after week. God actually wants you to know if you have eternal life. He's not looking to extract obedience from you by toying with you. You know? Here's some eternal life. Oh, a little more obedience. Eternal life. You see, you got it. Ah, a little more obedience. He's not, 
He's not messing with you when he gives these tasks. The goal is certainty. That's what he's after. The Holy Spirit is eager to grant you not merely the gift of salvation, but an unshakable certainty that you have indeed received the gift. How does he give us an unshakable certainty that we've indeed received the gift? What's the common denominator in all of those tests? What do they ultimately force us to lean on for our confidence, our certainty that we are saved? What's this? We are saved by virtue of Jesus' performance for us, not our performance for God. Okay, we are not saved by virtue of our performance for Jesus, but Jesus' performance for us. That is where we look, ultimately, for confidence, certainty, that we are saved. And the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us do that. So it is not more godly to always be going around wondering, I just, I just don't know if I'm right with God. I mean, he's so holy. I'm so sinful. I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe if I stay close enough to the means of grace, I mean, I've got to read my Bible more and pray. No. No, no, no. Okay? You know who becomes the functional savior in that moment? Your good works. We are not saved by works. We are saved by faith. Not a faith that is apart from our works, but a faith that gives evidence of its authenticity through our works. I trust that God's used our study of 1 John to impart a greater certainty into your heart, friend. A certainty of salvation if you believe in the name of the Son of God. But as we approach the end of this series, I still carry a, I believe from the Lord, a genuine concern that some of us could still be tempted to the presumption I was talking about earlier. What do I mean by that? Well, it often looks like this. You know, you, you hear somebody like me preaching and you find yourself thinking or driving home or wake up in the morning and, and your thoughts basically go like this. Well, you know, I'm, I'm probably not as good a Christian as I should be. But I'm also not probably as bad a Christian as I could be. So, maybe I've got a C average. I mean, C's get degrees. So, God's loving I'm just going to bank on that and kind of hope it all works out. You know, we can, we can think like that. We can, we can presume things like that. That is exceedingly dangerous, friend. It's exceedingly dangerous. Don't gamble on the future of your soul. Okay? Don't settle for presumption. God wants you to be certain. And that means that we have to refuse to allow the cares of this world to distract us from giving attention to the infinitely greater concerns of the world to come. I love how Charles Spurgeon says this. I can understand a man doubting whether he is truly converted or not. But I cannot countenance his apathy in resting quiet till he has solved the riddle. How can you give sleep to your eyelids till you have known it? Not know whether you are in Christ or not, perhaps unreconciled, perhaps condemned already, perhaps on the brink of hell, perhaps with nothing more to keep you out of hell than the breath that is in your nostrils or the circulating drop of blood which any of 10,000 haps or mishaps may stop. And then your career 
is closed. Your life story ended, so I entreat thee, I beseech thee, shake off this sluggishness. Ask the Lord to say unto thy soul tonight, I am thy salvation. He is able and he is willing and he will do it for you when you eagerly seek it from him. Don't gamble with your soul. God has certainty for you in Jesus Christ. Because the question of where you stand in the eyes of your creator and king, the one to whom you owe your life and to whom you will one day give an account for the way you have spent your life is the single most important question you could ever answer in this life. For that reason, assurance starts with this, being certain, verse 13, of our salvation. That's the most important kind of certainty that Jesus gives us in an uncertain world. And because we are so prone to think, yeah, 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 I've got that. How about some real certainty? We need to be brought back to the fact that this is the best certainty we could ever ask for. You could not ask for a better certainty, friend, than knowing that it is well with your soul and that God loves you. And that he's going to bring you home because he loves you. You could not ask for a better certainty than that. Let's remember the certainty of our salvation. Let's be confident in our salvation. But assurance, though it starts here in these verses, it doesn't stop there, okay? I said there were four kinds of confidence. The first is confidence in our salvation. Here's the second, and we're going to spend the entire rest of this morning on this one. Two more verses. Because as I started working on these, I thought, Lord, we cannot move quickly here, okay? So what's the second kind of certainty? It's confidence in our prayers. It's confidence in our prayers, point two. All right, so look back at verse 13 again. Verse 13, notice here that John doesn't say those who believe in the name of the Son of God will have eternal life. As if our experience of eternal life were limited to the future. What does he say? Look at that verse again. That you may know that you, what? Have eternal life. You've got it in the present, right now. In other words, the the gift of eternal life that we have through faith in Christ yields not only a spiritual confidence for the future, but also a spiritual confidence in the present. Specifically, confidence in our prayers. That's what John's pointing to here. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. That's another way of talking about what John's just said in verse 13. Let's remember, let's hold fast to the confidence of salvation that we have in Jesus and his performance, not ours. Why can we do that? For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He never turns around and says, what the heck? (laughs) But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, tempted as you are, friend, yet without sin. So what do we do? Does our confidence just stop with being certain of salvation? Well, no. As in Hebrews 4, so in 1 John 5. It overflows in something. What's it overflowing? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. 
there's a dynamic here of allowing the confidence of relationship, access, salvation that we have with God through Christ to overflow in a life that is ever running confidently to the Lord for answers to our prayers. That's what's in view here. There's a certainty God wants every Christian to experience in their prayers as a result of the gospel. If you look at verse 14 and 15, John explains this in the form of two if-then statements. So look first at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, implied then, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, what happens? Then he hears us. So let's think about that, okay? The only kind of prayer God not only delights to answer, but will ever answer, church, is a prayer that is in accordance with his perfect will. Why is that the case? It's the simplest way I can answer this one. It's because he's God and we're not. Why is it the case that God will only delight to answer and will only ever answer a prayer that is in keeping with his perfect will? Ultimately, it's because he's God and we're not. So think about that. If God were to submit his will to yours and mine, if he were to call us in and say, you know, I've kind of got a draft going, um, but I've got it up on Google Docs and I, I made you an editor, so could you just kind of read over this and, you know, make it better? If he were to do that, who would start ruling the universe functionally? The editors, right? We would, we would. We, we would be functionally God. And the one true God would effectively cease to exist. He's not going to do that. He'll, he'll never allow that to happen because his absolute sovereignty over the entire universe, including all of your life, friend, is part of the essence of what it means for God to be God. Isaiah 46, verse 9. For I am God, and there is no other. I'm running nothing on Google Docs. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, the collective counsel of human beings shall stand. The current administration in the White House shall stand. My counsel shall stand. Oh, that's good news. My counsel. Hear the Lord Almighty saying that over your life today, brothers and sisters. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. You and I would be in a host of trouble if we were somehow able to compel God to answer prayers that were not in keeping with his good and perfect will. We would be in a host of trouble. Why do I say that? Because we think we know better than him. We don't. We don't. We, we, we don't know. Just think about this. I don't have to work long. I hope to make this point. We don't know the end from the beginning. 
We don't know all the ways the events of today will affect the events of tomorrow. But God does, right? He's perfect in wisdom. He's perfect in knowledge. He's perfect in love. And he causes all things to work together for his good, our good and his glory. And if that's who God is, then it's an exceedingly good thing that he only answers prayers that are in accordance with his will. Because he knows what he's doing. We don't. We're the creature. I love how John Stott sums this point up. It's so simple. Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God. Or for bending his will to ours but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. I hope when you see that, friend, and think subordinating my will to God, that the, the Spirit of God would always so humble your heart that you and I never for a moment think that we could actually know better than him. There are things about his perfect will that make no sense to me. And the longer I live, the longer my list gets. But who am I to say to the potter, your work has no handles? Who am I as a creature to tell him that I know better? He only answers prayers in accordance with his will, and that is good for us. But it leaves a question. Begs a question, at least I hope it was begging a question in your mind. Do do we have to somehow acquire a comprehensive understanding of the eternal plans and purposes of God so that we can pray in keeping with his eternal plans and purposes? Because unless we pray in keeping with his eternal plans and purposes, he's never going to answer my prayers. Do I have to find a way to grasp comprehensively the eternal plans and purposes of God? Well... Yes and no. Okay, so follow me here. The answer is yes, in the sense that the only kind of prayer God delights to answer, the only kind of prayer he'll ever answer, is a prayer that's in keeping with his perfect will. We've seen that. But no, in the sense that God hasn't left us on our own when it comes to understanding what his will is, so we can pray accordingly. He's given us his will the revelation of his word. He's revealed his will to you in here so that we can pray in accordance with it. Now, now the word of God doesn't reveal everything we might want it to reveal. There are plenty of things that in the mystery of his wisdom, God, God does not share with us. But what it does reveal is both, listen, unwaveringly truthful and wholly sufficient to enable us to pray with confidence in whatever situation we find ourselves. It's part of the sufficiency of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, six, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, occasionally equipped for a few good works. No, what does it say? Equipped for every good work. 
Part of the sufficiency of the self-revelation of God in the word of God is that he gives us all the knowledge we need of the will of God in order to pray in keeping with his will. It's a gift. It's sufficient. So let me give you an example of what I'm, I'm talking about here. How, how, how does scripture help us know what sort of things to pray for in a given situation? Here's an example. All right, so let's just say your friend suddenly loses their job. Suddenly loses their job. Maybe this has happened to one of your friends. All right, when it happens, you know, there, there's no Bible verse. At least I hope you don't go looking because you won't find one. that says, when thy friend loses a job, God is faithful and just to give him another job before the end of the month. I mean, you can look, you, you won't find that. So does that mean we shouldn't pray for a new job? Well, of course not. It might be the will of God. It might not be. We don't ultimately know. God doesn't owe any of us a job. But what do we know? We know the revealed will of God in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And listen, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and, and all these things will be added to you. So we remember that verse, we remember that, and we say, that is a revelation of the will of God. So what do we pray? We pray this, Lord, you've told us that you know our physical needs. Lord, you've promised that if we're willing to seek first your kingdom and trust you with our lives, you will provide all we need to love you and glorify you. So we ask you, Lord, to provide our sister with a new job. Take care of her physical needs as she's faithful to honor you with her life. That's how we pray Matthew 6. The will of God in that verse. Or, or we remember the will of God in, in James 1 verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, what's the will of God in these trials? Produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we remember that. Revealed will of God. And what do we pray? Lord, we ask you to use this trial in her life to produce a new measure of steadfastness, a new measure of faith and trust that you are God, that you are good, and that you will never leave or forsake her. And that you're even now using this situation for her good and your glory. And you're going to conform her through this trial into the image of her son, your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, would, would you help our sister to hunger and thirst for righteousness even more than she hungers and thirsts for a new job. That's how we pray in accordance with the will of God. And so I, I hope it's clear, just from those examples, friend, that if you're going to pray like that, in accordance with the will of God, then you need to have a mind and a heart that are saturated with the word. The, the prayers that God delights to answer are the prayers of a Christian whose heart and mind are saturated with the will of God as revealed in the word of God. That's what we kind of people we have to be. And, and when that happens and, and your, our mind is saturated with the revealed will of God and the word of God, then Surprise, surprise, our prayers start to change. 
how do they change? Well, well, they won't cease to ask God for specific outcomes, but they will grow to include all manner of requests that have less to do with the circumstantial outcome and more to do with the condition of our hearts. It's the Word of God that helps us understand the will of God so we can pray in accordance with the will of God. Look back at verse 14, verse 15. If, back to the if-thens, John helps us understand this confidence we have in prayer. If we ask anything according to his will, what does he say we know? We know that he hears us. He hears us. We have to ask in accordance with his will, but then, then what do we know? What's the then? If you do that, what's the then? We know that he hears us. Christian, do you realize that when you pray, you are neither speaking into thin air nor dialing an automated answering service. Think about this. How many times have you called your credit card company or an airline and and a voice on the other end says, thank you for calling. Please tell us the reason for your call. For example, you can say, check balance, make payment, or dispute a charge. If you try to explain in as awkward and concise language as possible what you need, and inevitably the voice on the other end of the line says what? I'm sorry, but we do not understand your request. Please try again. You can say, make payment, <laughs> dispute, charge. Bah, that's not what I'm trying to do. Ah, oh, hang up. Hey, Eliza, can you make a phone call for me? You know, and you, and you just try to hold on, maybe put on speakerphone, change the oil. And, and at some point, it's like, to speak with an operator, please press one now. You're finally! Eh. Talking with God is never like that. Never ever like that, okay? It's not mechanical. Prayer is not inserting coins in the divine will slot machine. It's deeply and intimately personal. It's personal. God God never outsources the work of listening to your prayers. He doesn't have a call center halfway across the world staffed with angels and are like, I'm sorry, I don't know. You know, and, and you never have to wonder, you know, are they even going to speak my native language? You know, it's, it, look back at verse 14. We know, if we pray according to his will, he hears us, friend. Who's the he? It's God himself. It's your heavenly father. This is just amazing. Who loves you. Because he delights in you. He, he never says in response to the prayers of his children, Hey, can somebody get the door? <laughs> ah, he always hears. He hears when we pray in accordance with his will. He loves to hear your voice. And the hearing John's describing here in verse 14 it isn't just a physical phenomenon, okay? It's not John's way of saying, well, rest assured that the sound waves of your prayer pass through the Lord's auditory canal. No, okay? The hearing in view here, look at verse 14. He hears us. That hearing is a listening with favor. 
It's hearing with an unwavering commitment to answer our request. Why do I say that? Where are you getting at, Williams? Well, because of verse 15. What's John say right after this? He hears us. Implication, and if we know that he hears us, another if, then what? We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. His listening is listening with favor and unwavering commitment and inclination to answer our request. Now, in light of our Christian experience, that there are many times when we think we are praying and very well seem to be praying according to the will of God, revealed in the word of God, and yet God doesn't seem to answer our request. We really have to slow down here. Which is the whole reason why I wanted to make this part one. (laughs) So we don't have to rush this, okay? So think very carefully with me about what John is saying and not saying in verse 15. To, To have the request is simply another way of saying that we have the answer to our prayer. But we have to be careful because as I. Howard Marshall points out, having the request... I think this is really helpful, refers to the possession of an answer, not necessarily the reception of an answer. Okay? What do I mean by that? What's the difference between possession and reception? Well, well, to possess an answer to your prayers is to possess an objective certainty that God is going to answer your prayer, if it's in accordance with his will, even if the actual experience of that answer is still waiting in the future. You possess the answer, but you haven't received it yet. So in contrast, to, to receive an answer to prayer is to actually experience right now the fulfillment of your request. There's a difference between possessing the answer, we know it's coming, and receiving the answer. I've got it right now. I think a good illustration of this is if you've ever gone to a car dealer and you're buying a new car and maybe you get back to your apartment, you've bought a new car, you tell your roommate, hey man, I got a new car. And he says, well, congrats, where is it? Oh, well, I don't actually have it, but I cut the check, I signed all the paperwork, they gave me the title, I've got a set of keys, I can show you a picture on my phone if you want to see it, it's legally mine. I'm just waiting for the shop to fix a couple more things before I pick it up. You wouldn't say to that guy, dude, you don't, you didn't get a new car. You don't, you don't have a new car until I see it in your parking spot. Well, no, you have it, you possess it, you just have yet to, to receive it. So, so the parallel isn't perfect, but, but a similar sort of thing is often true in our relationship with God. So think about it. For example, back to verse 13, John tells us something about the will of God. He tells us that God wants his children, those who believe in the name of the Son of God, to know that they have eternal life. He doesn't just want them to have it. He wants them to know that they have it. So what do we do? What do we do in light of that statement of the will of God when a friend says, hey man, I'm just struggling to know, to believe that God is actually for me and not against me and that I am saved. Well, we pray for them in accordance with God's will. So we, we pray. What do we pray? Lord, you've said that you will use your words, specifically the words in 1 John, to give us the gift of assurance. Do that right now for my friend. We know that's a prayer in accordance with God's will. So we know God hears it. 
And if we know God hears it, what else do we know? Verse 15, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. We can be certain that God will do what we've asked him to do because he's promised to do it. At the same time, we must not lose sight of everything else the Bible teaches about praying with patient persistence. God might not grant that assurance immediately. And we also have to not lose sight of everything else the Bible teaches about praying in humble submission to the unsearchable wisdom of God who does all things well even if we don't understand his ways. In the inscrutable mystery of his wisdom, he may decide that full assurance of salvation will not be something that person experiences till the day they see God in glory. In that sense, because of the word of God and the will of God, they possess the answer to that prayer. But they may have yet to receive it. And that distinction is important, friend, because otherwise I think we can turn verse 15 into some sort of um, arm wrestling contest where we, we use it to get God to do whatever we want him to do when we want him to do it. And that would make us God. So he's not going to play by those rules. So we have to be really careful to understand verse 15 in, in light of the entire rest of Scripture and everything else it teaches us about persisting in prayer, submitting those prayers to the mysterious but always good wisdom of God. But, but we also have to be careful of something else. And this is, this is a big burden for our church, on my heart for our church, as those who on the whole, I think, know the word of God pretty well. And that's this. I think that we can qualify verse 15 to death. We can qualify it to death. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that in response to our Christian experience, where God doesn't seem to answer all our requests when we want him to do so, we try to protect ourselves from disappointment by focusing on what John isn't saying here instead of embracing what he is saying. And so with every passing year, we grow more and more reluctant to plead any of God's promises back to him because we assume that there's always some sort of hidden loophole that enables God to be faithful to his word but never actually answer our request. You done that? I've done that. Brothers and sisters, that's not faith. That's not faith. That's unbelief. That's unbelief masquerading as wise skepticism. Verse 15 isn't meant to raise our expectations of God simply so that the rest of Scripture can send them crashing to the ground. It's meant to increase our faith and strengthen our certainty that God will be faithful to act in response to the prayers of his people. That's why it's here. Faith. So what does faith do? Faith believes the word of God. Faith prays the word of God. And then faith waits with a confident expectation that God will do exactly what he said he will do. Even if it doesn't look like what we initially imagined or anticipated. Because his ways are not our ways. 
His, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. But that doesn't mean simply because we can't wrap our mind around all of them that we can't understand any of them or pray in according to his will. We know his will because he's revealed it in his word. And friend, please hear this. God has sovereignly ordained to accomplish things through your word-centered prayers that he will not accomplish apart from your word-centered prayers. Theologians often speak of two wills in God. Not because he actually has multiple wills and wakes up in the morning and decides what one to wear. But because from our perspective, there are some things that are hidden. And there are some things that are revealed. So God always acts in accordance with his hidden or secret will. But sometimes to us, he appears from our vantage point to not act in accordance with his revealed will. At least not on our timetable or in the way we imagine that he would if we said that. So what do we do with this, friends? Well, in conclusion, two things. How, how do we make sure that all these qualifications don't undermine our confidence in prayer, because that's the whole point here. Two things, okay? Two application points. One, a right response to the hidden or secret will of God that we will never comprehend is humility. A humility that rejects arrogant slogans like, if you believe it, you'll receive it. In exchange for Jesus' words in Luke 22, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's humility in action in response to the secret or hidden will of God that we'll never fully comprehend. So what's the right response to the revealed will of God that we can comprehend? It's in his word. Well, it's faith. The first is humility. The second is faith. A faith, listen, that rejects fatalistic slogans like que sera, sera. You know, whatever will be, will be. Rejects that in exchange for Abraham's testimony in Romans 4 verse 20. No unbelief. Hear this. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Why? Because he was fully convinced. Church, hear this. When God speaks in his word, the only appropriate response is a faith that says, Lord, I am fully convinced that you are who you say you are and you will do what you said you will do. I believe. Help my unbelief. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. We need to be a people who are humble. We need to be a people who are full of faith. And that is what confidence in prayer looks like in action. Let's remember the big picture. What's the big idea? Knowing Jesus enables us to have what? Certainty in the midst of an uncertain world. And in 1 John, that certainty, the closing chapter comes out in a variety of ways. Different kinds of spiritual confidence. The first is confidence, our salvation. 
And confidence in our salvation, this confidence that God is for us, not against us, it overflows in confidence in our prayers. I'll end with this quote back to our brother John Stott, who helps us see why confidence in our prayers is not presumption. It's faith. Listen to this. Certainty and humility do not exclude one another. If God's revealed purpose is not only that we should hear, believe, and live, but also that we should know, this is the best part, presumptuousness, where we started this morning, lies in doubting his word, not in trusting it. Friend, when you choose to trust the word of God and pray accordingly, you are not walking in presumption. When you choose to doubt the word of God and fail to pray accordingly, you are walking in presumption because you are presuming that somehow in some way what Almighty God has said is true is not true. The kind of trust that we need kind of confidence in our salvation, confidence in our prayers that we desperately need is only something that the Lord Jesus can give us. That's why I love verse 13. This is the whole book in essence. We have to believe in the name of the Son of God. It's where our faith comes from, including our faith to pray. So let's do that right now. Oh, Father, I, I join my friends, those who know you in this room, those who do not know you, in praying that right now you would make us confident in our salvation. Father, I ask that wherever any one of us has wondered or came into this meeting this morning wondering where, where do we stand with you? Are you for us? Are you against us? Lord, I I pray that right now you would open our eyes and fix them on Jesus so that we might receive through repentance and faith the gift of assurance, confidence of salvation. And then Lord, I pray that that fresh confidence, that fresh assurance of our salvation would overflow for all those who do know you, who do believe in the name of the Son of God, that they can be confident in prayer because your word is true. Even when your ways are mysterious. I pray you would make us a people who are willing to persevere in bringing to you a sacrifice of prayer. And view prayer not as something that we do when we feel confident, but as an act of faith in and of itself, believing that as we call upon the name of the Lord and plead your promises back to you, that your Holy Spirit will give us the confidence we need to keep praying to you and keep calling upon the name of the Lord. We ask you, Lord, to make us a people who are humble and a people who are faithful that our assurance would not be a door we pass through at one point in our life and then stick it under the mattress. 
would be a confidence that compels us to pray without ceasing. Let's take a few minutes to talk to the Lord right now. Wherever you are, whatever's going on.